0: Hello, I'm Somi Aryan, I'm a tech philosopher and the founder of Impeek. My guest on today's podcast is Chris Mason, a professor of genomics, physiology and biophysics at Cornell University. Many of you know that I'm super interested in all things science, genetics and physics and the cross-section of these fields with AI and blockchain. Although these days, most people know me for my work in Web3, I remain super passionate about the wider world of science and technology, and I would love to be able to be at the forefront of helping bring these fields into Web3. So without further ado, let's get right into the conversation with Professor Chris Mason. Chris, thank you so much for being here, I uh, haven't had a chance to read the book yet, I've got it, it's on my to read list. Um, but I listened to a few of your interviews, um, and especially I really enjoyed the interview you had with uh, with Lex Friedman, and I'm stealing a lot of his <laughs> his <laughs> guests, basically. <laughs> um, so uh, as I was explaining to you before we started, you know, essentially, nowadays, a lot of my work is on the metaverse and, and web three, um, and this new kind of generation of um, or iteration of the internet that's being created. I used to also do quite a lot of research on AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a deep interest in all things to do with space, um, you know, and genomics and you know, all the different in- interesting areas that you work on. Um, mm-hmm. And essentially trying to understand um, the human evolution. Um, I believe that in this uh, century, we are uh, morphing into something new, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like some, uh, we, are, we are essentially becoming um, something else other than Homo sapiens because of the way that we are using technology. Um, although I also always have this um, inkling that maybe we are not using technology, maybe technology is using us. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. uh, you know that's another uh, angle that we can look at. Um, so you have done some really interesting work uh, on all the di- these different areas that that I just mentioned. Um, I think first things first. I wanted to get a better idea of how much maybe you may have looked at um, Web3 uh, and uh, whether you um, have like had any, uh, where you are in, in terms of your understanding of and your involvement in this new kind of area that we call Web3.
1: Yeah, well, I've looked uh, a fair amount at some uh, of the technologies that are behind it. Also, you know, obviously there's a lot of Bandwidth, uh, uh, structural infrastructure changes that enable you know, Web three or some of the more later uh, developments of sharing data uh, that lets you actually do AR, VR tools, or even have different interfaces for accessing data and, and just communicating information on the internet. So I think it's it's broadly uh, you know exciting. It's always better when you have more options, uh, improved technologies, better tools. Uh, more ways to interface with people and with data, so I, I think it's, writ large, good. I think there's still a lot of people you critique it and say, well, is there something as Web three that's doing that you can't at all do today? And so I think a lot of them are uh, are better versions of of sort of you know mundane uh, ways we interface with people today, but but still, I mean, improvements are good. So I think people that are critiquing it just are, are saying, you know, is it absolutely needed? But you could even argue we didn't absolutely need to go from you know boring HTML links and HTML uh, coding due to, to, to Java or PHP or other codes. Like those are also variations on, on, you know, what was original web, web scripting, uh, but every bit is improved. So I, I think it's, it's good to see continued improvement and iteration and this will, you know, there has been discussions even about sharing genomics data this way. Like it could have changed the way we share medical information, genetics data, the way we, um, you know, just share uh, fitness data even has been discussed. Like, so it could, it could potentially impact almost everything. Uh, the way the web already has but just would be with a lot more options a lot more interfaces so yeah, i think it's a large good
0: yeah so um the kind of at the core of it what web3 is about is essentially uh decentralization it's kind of like trying to take the power from you know centralized entities uh, big corporations like google facebook etc and um Give at least a degree of uh, control back to people, um, you know, and and the individuals who have got, um, you know, who are the source of this data, and to enable them to maybe if they want uh, to monetize it or you know have control of it, right, in in any uh, way that um, that they see fit. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's complete decentralization because you know we are discovering that complete decentralization at the moment, at least. We don't yet have the cultural and the social and the technological means to uh, to do that yet, because you still need some level of direction, leadership, etc. Um, and the second thing uh, aspect of it is tokenization, which we uh, are going to talk about when um, you know talking about how to fund research and how to fund uh, potentially you know like um, things like space explorations and things like that. So we will come to that. Um, so, from the viewpoint of, uh, you know, the, the, all the different things that you have worked on, from the viewpoint of, you know, you, like you are doing all this research and work on what it would be like to live outside of our Earth. Mm-hmm. I'm more and more uh, inclined to think of whether the, the um, solution is necessarily to think about leaving Earth physically. Or is it about trying to discover a different aspect of being that that goes beyond Mm. the chemical, uh, you know, uh, beings that we are, right? Like um, like the digital side of of us. So um, so if I had, uh, you know, uh, a big pot of money right now, would I? Uh, spend it, like I can see when I look at, you know, all the different uh, billionaires like uh, Elon Musk, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, putting so much effort into sp- space exploration, explorations, mm-hmm. I feel like uh, um, there's another aspect that we could explore, and that would be like, our digital side. So, mm-hmm. um, so have, have you thought of that, uh, about that at all? Or do you think that you know, leaving this uh, or moving our meat suit to another place is necessarily like the the solution.
1: Good question. So there is, of course, limitations to the meat suit. And I've I've written a lot in my book about ways to get upgrades or to do modifications to improve where we can live, how we can live, uh, biochemical functions in our own cells that take lessons from other creatures or even have genes within our own DNA that are just silent and not yet been active since we were you know, uh, millions of years ago, a different variation of humans, uh, but still rest inside of our DNA, like, like the gene to make your own vitamin C, for example, is still inside of us. Uh, So I I think, and that's what we're working on in lab is ways to reactivate those genes, control those genes, actually merge genetic, basically skills, genetic tools from other species into human cells. And so that's one approach which I've written about and talked a lot about, but to your point, the idea of a digital twin or having, you know, sending robots to other planets, which we already do. are, of course, in a lot of ways safer uh, for the the meat suit uh, because it doesn't get irradiated and damaged. Uh, But it is never, I think, as good in the near term as having someone with real-time adaptive skills and ability to improvise uh, because there's actually a time delay between Earth and Mars anywhere from several minutes to a few dozen minutes uh, of just processing. So it it does take a while just even to have communication between planets. So you do need local autonomy, uh, but you could have a a version of a, a program, you know, essentially, you know, digital twin. Um, and there's actually uh, Daniel craft that does a lot of work on this on digital health, the idea of twinning and the X prizes has a whole work on just digital twins This idea of, can we make for, for medical purposes, could we have a complete model of a person? So when you try and prescribe a, a medication or you try to understand a response to a disease that you can have a digital twin, that is your best model, um, for for what might happen. So this is an active area of research in in medicine, in robotics, uh, and just in general, you know, potentially consciousness. Could you, you know, put your whole consciousness online? That's what's often called the the singularity at some point that we'll all be living online and um, what Ray Kurzweil has talked about, which I think is supposed to be in the mid 2030s. But I, I, you know, I I hope that that that, that sounds wonderful. I hope that happens. I think it might be more hard, more complicated than what people have have imagined, uh, or that you might have a version of the digital twin but may not be quite as uh, spot on as you'd like for yourself. It might be just a little bit different. I think it's it's hard to program peculiarity uh, of people, but but not impossible. But it you know you, you'd want to almost build in free will algorithms, uh, which is hard to program right now. But the uh, but I think it, it, it's a good question because we know that we're not suited for other planets uh, currently. So we we have to either modify ourselves, or send twins, or send robots, or, or all the above. Which is I think the perspective I'm taking is that we'll probably need all of these options because we don't know which ones will be the most permanent the most adaptable and the most successful.
0: Yeah, definitely. So the the singularity uh I believe he says it's um in uh, the at uh, the, the 2040s um 2045 and but he thinks that um by the end of this decade yeah, by by 2029 we will see AGI. Uh, I think that's the um, what, what he he has he used to say. Um, he's got a new book coming out that's called "The Singularity is nearer." You know, yeah. the first one was "Near," so this yeah. one is "The Singularity <laughs> is nearer," and that's coming out in twenty twenty three. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that one to see what he's got to say. But you know, Ray Kurzweil, you know, he 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 wanted to live forever, and um, he has uh, you know been uh, Really deep into a lot of supplementation and things yeah. like that, and and I I actually have been taking a lot of the supplements that that uh, he's been talking about because I was like, yeah, I want to live to the singularity and I want to like be up there with with Ray, um, mm-hmm. but you know, with all of that, he's still aging definitely. I can see that he's still aging. So so we haven't yeah. solved that one.
1: We've no, I I know his physician actually. Yes, he's still aging. Um, and, and met him once, and so you know, as we all are. So I, I think. It is, uh, and even most aging researchers, I think really good ones will say, you know, we want to try and get people to live to be 110, 120, 130. Um, There are a few people who think we live to be 200 or 300 and look at, you know, turtles or look at uh, large whales. Some mammals can live for a long time. Uh, So it's not impossible. I just think it's impossible with just subtle variations. I think we have to really restructure our genetic code if we really want to live to be 250 years old. And so I think Um, uh, which I just don't know if we know enough yet to do that uh, well. I think maybe someday we will, but we're still discovering genes uh, to this day that are in the human genome. The first human genome was really just completed uh, really this past year uh, to to the end, telomeres to telomeres, all the parts of it, which are hard to map some areas of them. So then, you know, I think we'll get there eventually. But um, there's still a lot of fundamental knowledge that we're, I think, just collecting today. To enable those questions to be asked, I'd say.
0: So, are you telling me that all these supplements I'm taking, they're not gonna?
1: <laughs> I think that, well, it's just about expectations. I think. Do you think they'll make you live 50 years longer? Probably not. Will they make you live uh, your you know health span be longer? Hopefully, as lifespan, probably a little bit. Um, you know, I, I recognize the irony because I have a, a longevity company called Longevity uh, that we just sold last year. Uh, so I'm in the business. I, I'm just among the more. Um, I'm optimistic about almost everything in science, except for how, how far we can push human longevity, uh, in the absence of large scale genetic changes. I think you can tweak it, nudge it a little bit, five, 10 years, maybe 20, but I, I think, you know, some people who are taking supplements think they're going to live to be 150, which I think is insane because there's never a human being that's ever lived past 126 is the record. And that was a long time, that was decades ago. And that was, you know, um, that's including a lot of people who've been living in the past 10, 20 years. Who are taking supplements and variations of, of drugs for 30 or 40 years so um, i think it's a hard problem so it's a little bit harder than people think it will be but uh, i applaud everyone who's trying things because we don't know a lot so we need lots of yeah. people trying a wide range of you know supplements mo- modifications uh the simplest things are still the best though moving around a lot The human body was built to move so you know, exercise, eating well, it's, um, so, and you know, having good communities—these blue zones—are are pretty simple changes.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and personally, I'm not necessarily concerned about uh, living a long time. It's more about being really like. Healthy and youthful, and you know, having all your cognition on all that stuff. Um,
1: I've you... lost most of my cognition, so I, I, I wish I could get it back. It's too late for me. It's all—it's all gone. So at this point, I feel like.
0: <laughs> but but you seriously feel the difference?
1: No, I feel I um, know I feel about the same. I guess I think uh, I have more wrinkles and more gray hair. I feel like, but I feel like that <laughs> I'm about the same as I was from age 17 until today. But at some point, it's going to start to decline. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we haven't solved that one yet. So um, do you think that we live in a simulation by any chance? Do
1: I do not. That? I think it's a, a classic philosophical question that, of course, there's many ways where the simulation could be so good that we wouldn't even know it. And uh, the, the many movies have uh, looked at this question like The Matrix. Um, but I think uh, I think I don't think so. And e- even if we did, I don't know if it was a, such a good simulation that we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Uh, then it may not matter anyway. So if it's, that, if it's that good, it'd be indistinguishable. The only difference, actually one of the really great movies that looked at this question was Inception. You've probably seen that movie uh, by Christopher Nolan. And there was a really, I think, pivotal scene in that movie where they, they had had one serum that let people that were effectively one hour was the equivalent of like one week when they were under the formula and so sleeping basically. But they were able to arguably live more by the fact they were under the this, this serum and the time was accelerated while they were dreaming. And to them, the dream world was more real than the real world. And uh, one of the, the quotes in the movie said, well, who are, who are we to question them if, if they wanna basically live longer effectively because they get more time per hour spent uh, in consciousness. They get you know a, a day for every hour or sometimes longer. Who are we to judge them or who are we to, to, to critique them? You know, the idea that simulation is, is the better option was kind of the implication. But I push back on that because you have to think about long-term sustainability. Like think about like living on this planet for more than several billion years is not possible because the sun will actually engulf the planet. So I think on some level you can't just say let's go live in the simulation because it's better because you get more time. Because the structure, the facets that support the ability to live in the simulation, still depend on a tangible physical world. uh, And then if that gets eaten by the sun, then no one's living at all, right? So at some level you have to be grounded into what is the substrate that enables any kind of simulation uh but if you do then you could have people that live in pods or live in dream worlds you know and, and have weeks of a vacation in one day or something like that so i'm mm-hmm. not against that i think it, uh, if anything it's efficient it's good if you say i took a four-week vacation in one day and you come back all relaxed that sounds great because you know why, why not so we might get to that state someday
0: yeah, no, I I would love that. Uh, I think ideally, if if it was in a way that you could switch back and forth, so yeah. that you had like a lot of time for certain things. I um, interviewed Donald Hoffman uh, last week. You know him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Name. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's written the uh, case against reality. So basically, he is pretty convinced that we are living in a sim- simulation, in mm-hmm. a simulation. Um, I I think the more I think about it the more I feel like we probably are Um, and because especially when I look at the metaverse like what we're building and the fact that you know we are building AI you know with which is like if AI becomes conscious you know if we are able to you know create AI that's conscious what's to say that we were not like we are not the result of someone else's um, you know simulation, and what Donald Hoffman was saying was that um, when so he he says that the uh, on a uh, I hope I'm not butchering his his code, but essentially this was my understanding that um, on a fundamental level the the universe is right like um, a uh, group of conscious agents uh, that are, you know, that are giving rise to these experiences. And it was like, essentially, if we create AI that is conscious, it's not that we are creating AI that is creating, that is giving rise to a new emergent consciousness. It's more that we are creating a new entity that is a new portal uh, Mm -hmm. for the consciousness that's already there. So like, so that we are a portal to the you know con- underlying consciousness and and then uh, you know if a sil- silicon based life becomes conscious then that's just another portal and if if uh and he's like very mm-hmm. uh very elegant in the way that he explains it you know with mathematics and he's going to send me his new paper um that they are working on and he was just so excited about it and I and I kind of like I mean, inclined to buy into that. I think that that's uh, that's potentially a very interesting idea.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Be- and the reason why I'm interested in it is because if it is true, then maybe we could bend reality without having to physically do it. Yeah. You know, like.
1: It, it, like, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm definitely matter agnostic towards cognition. Uh, even in my book, I have a section about that. What if AI starts out um, and becomes more benevolent than we are and maybe is a, a better steward of life or complexity in the universe? Uh, I, I would be open to that. In fact, even uh, explicitly say so that this this is uh, if, we, if we design AI correctly, it may be our, you know, the better angels of our nature and be better than we are potentially uh, if you do a good programming job. So it could be silicon-based or, or other, um, you know, matter that's that's creating consciousness and whatever it might be, and uh, whatever organism it is or whether a machine, it may, they all are potential allies. Uh, they could be enemies too. A lot of people are worried about AI as an enemy. I am less worried about that because I've actually programmed uh, algorithms and and machine learning tools. And I think the the biggest threat to that, I think, is not the uh, self-awareness of the system, but is more the programmer who designed it. And how you design it, I think um humans often are the biggest risk to ourselves more than the things that we make uh because it it could be implemented wrong or programmed incorrectly. I think is the bigger risk, so I think natively native intelligence by itself is not necessarily uh going to decide to do genocide, even though I think we look at our own our own history and have seen genocide and have seen horrors, and the worry is that we hold up a mirror of cognition and, and are um, anxious that that might occur again in the future, but there's no guarantee that it will. There are also um, extraordinary feats of, of collaboration and coordination between cultures and, and nations. So I think, there, um, I think it can go both ways, but I think people just, just looking at the negative side of AI are missing uh, half the picture. And so I, I think whether we're in a simulation or not, or where it might be, I think that you have to be open to cognition coming from, from any, any object, any entity, uh, definitely.
0: Very interesting. So, um, when I think of, you know, the metaverse that um, we are, you know, there are so many different companies now that are trying to build different variations of the metaverse. Um, And I can see AI being living, uh, you know, alongside us, living and working alongside us in the metaverse to a point that it could potentially be completely uh, unrecognizable and uh, that that you know you you wouldn't know whether you're speaking to a human or a bot um right now uh, in uh, the web3 space have you ever been on discord
1: uh, no but yes name.
0: so a lot of um you know the web3 communities right now a lot of them are on discord um, do you own or have you ever? Um, do you have any kind of? Do you have NFTs? Do you have like a crypto wallet? You know that
1: type. Yeah, of crypto wallet, I've, I've made some NFTs. Uh, one we did was Seed Labs, which was uh, by the world's most famous artist, and it was, it was actually made out of fecal microbiome transplant material. So we did made an NFT for there and raised some funds for some research. Uh, That's so, yeah, so I've, interesting. Done a bit of those, yeah.
0: Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. Actually, I really uh, want to encourage more people from science and other areas of um, you know uh, of science, art, philosophy, you know other areas uh, that are not necessarily financially um, they're not known for the financial side of things um, to come into this space because right now this whole Web3 NFT tokenization space is so financially driven and um, basically everybody is just thinking about, buying, minting an NFT and then selling it for more. Um, and it's just become a really almost like, I would say unsustainable. And yes. like, yeah. it's creating a, a very unpleasant culture. But I see uh, if we get to a point that, you know, really scientists start using, um these technologies the technology of NFTs is really interesting and and very helpful um right now uh, i'm building a a platform which is basically like a web 3 version of linkedin um you know with like for professional networking and and education learning and um and and we really want to bring in more scientists more you know uh, people from Various backgrounds into uh, this space, you know, people in technology uh, who are really who want to use this technology as a way to raise funds, you know, for research uh, and for uh, for things that may be much easier to get pub- public funding for, you know, or government funding for, but is like areas of you know real interest, like for example, this whole thing about longevity research, you know, you could come in and issue NFTs, then the people who become part of that uh, community, they can follow your, um, your research, you know, they, like they, maybe some of them will be able to or would like to, you know, volunteer to kind of um, p- uh, participate in clinical trials and things like that. So I see a real uh, possibility for using this technology to kind of like go away from this speculation uh the culture that has been developed and, and actually put it to good use so we'd love to know um you know how you think uh people like us developing these new um kind of platforms and technologies can mm-hmm. help scientists open up new possibilities for um exploration
1: well lots of ways the the really good question to think um uh, you know the scientists off, you know often make uh, git repositories or code bases for for hosting data or methods. But you know, and you have it be on a website where you can query it, you can download it. But there haven't been as much, you know really great platforms for sharing or decentralization of some of the data yet for science. but but there's a, a really sharp need for it because the data silos problem is a big problem in science and medicine where people have their own data sets and' it's, it's either hard to share the data. Uh, or it is, you know, essentially impossible because just because of limitations for clinical data sets. Uh, so you have to have agreements between universities and companies. And you know, there there is a um, uh, it's very slow and laborious just to be able to share data uh, between entities and scientists. Though there are some groups that have tried to build platforms around this, like uh, Synapse is one. Uh, sage bio networks built a platform for data sharing so th- there are there are examples of people who tried to create these systems where it makes it easier for people just to share methods tools data uh, and it's getting better i think a little bit but but I, th- I think there's a lot that scientists could could benefit from newer platforms or even build out uh stronger ones and and so i think it, it, any way you can make it easier for people to share data methods tools uh that they generally i would be happy to They're they're often pretty busy though and sometimes there's there's a lot of complexity to them, like a protocol that involves moving cells and uh, treating them in a certain way with a very specific instrument. uh, It's sometimes hard to describe, but there's often even new journals that once called like Jove, the Journal of Visual Experiments, which is just, it's video based. So you actually watch someone perform a protocol in a laboratory to learn the protocol. So, you know, one good thing about newer platforms is you can have not just a paper describing something, but get videos, get content, get you know engagement with Uh, the scientists and the protocols for example which is good
0: so so that is more like the techno and using the blockchain technology for data management which is super interesting um i am thinking also from the viewpoint of having a deeper connection between scientists uh, you know and and the general public um Mm -hmm. in a way that people can really connect with what you're doing you know, right now. Obviously, a lot of people discover you from, say, like I have through you know, podcasts and, and um, you know, this, this type of content. But I think there is, um, the, uh, let's say, for example, if there was like a community of 10,000, 20,000 people who are deeply interested in what you're doing and they are willing to buy NFTs, you know, to be part of a community where they can have access to you, uh, you know, maybe once a week you will do a uh, Q&A, you know, uh, or you Mm -hmm. kind of like uh, upload, um, you know, uh, latest updates of whatever it is that you're working on. Um, You know, this could be really interesting uh, and in a, it, would be a, a new way of creating community. So one of the things that we're dis, uh, we're kind of like exploring with uh, the platform we're building is um, to go away from this idea of having like big following, you mm-hmm. know, like you know, Better looking on, on. Yeah, exactly. Like like going away from that, and instead creating um, an environment where people can have deep connections, deeper connections with with those people that they want to f- uh, follow or or um you know support and um uh, and that you you pick a number of uh uh, communities or people that you can handle you know that you can follow what they are doing and you can also uh support them financially by buying their tokens and those tokens because they are non-fungible you know that then whenever somebody is no longer wanting to um follow that you know they can just simply sell it on the secondary market and somebody else will buy it and and you know then they come into the the space um so i i would really love to see more scientists um kind of look into this model because Mm. right now uh it's really not like not being used in uh, to its fullest and potential um and uh do you think that scientists um, like yourself, do you think that you would be interested in something like that? Or would you be like, no, I just want to focus on my work and like not really connect with with people?
1: Uh, I mean, there's always a need for more funding for research where uh, most scientists and clinical researchers are writing grants, usually uh, every week, sometimes every day, it's to the National Institutes of Health, it's to the National Science Foundation to philanthropy, to uh, you know industry collaborators, uh, experiments and staff and and lab resources are expensive, and you have to fund the research. so it's it's um, it is a part of the job is to raise funding for research. And clinical trials can be millions of dollars for one drug or uh, specific cell culture experiments or new instruments can be a half a million dollars for just you know one instrument uh, sometimes more. Uh, you know so it, it is expensive. And so raising funds is always a priority. And uh, like I said, we've done some NFT fundraising once uh, for, but it was more for charity. But I, but the charity was for to do research, and so I, I think this is a an untapped resource that would you know the people you just have to make it easy for them because if you ask uh, people to say, can you summarize for an NFT fundraising campaign, most scientists or or doctors or clinicians would say, uh, you know, I don't know what to do. I can send you some figures or some pictures uh, from my lab, but you know they they would probably need a little bit of help to to get the, get it onto a platform. But there's something that would be open to it. And I, like I said, I've done a little bit of this and it was, um, you know, it was, it was a good experience because it was not too much work and, and also a bit of fun. So it, there's, um, it was basically with a fecal microbiome tra- uh, transplant. Uh, it was the most famous artist. I don't know if you've heard of it. it was uh, We did it work with, with um, uh, it was to fund gut brain research. Uh, and so the, the, it was uh, a, a fun fun grant to look at. Uh, uh, microbes that are disrupted in autism, and and got some money to actually, um, you know, basically uh, raise funds for the research. So it was, um, it, it, I think it, it more seeing more of that would be great. Great to have happen. That.
0: So that's super interesting because I think uh, as we're building this platform, I'm thinking about like creating an arm of it that is specifically for this type of thing, um, and and helping bring more scientists, um, and researchers into the Web3 space. Uh, So this is really good to know that um, there is potentially uh, interest in that. Um, I've got a question around education. Um, With this, you know, this new space, this uh, when I look at the speed with which Web3 is developing, I can see that um, the, uh, you know, the, the official kind of educational, Um, institutions are going to be left behind because they are just not um, evolving fast enough to be able to uh, teach these things. You know, like if you wanted to learn about blockchain right now, um, there's no point in doing a a university degree in it. You need to learn it on the job because it's moving so fast that by the time you are accepted, you know, like uh, to do something, you know, it's moving so fast. So, um, so what are your thoughts on um, formal education, and how you think? How do you see it, you know, changing in the next five to ten years?
1: Yeah, I've actually involved in a couple other universities that are free and public. One is called World Quant University, which is for people that want to get uh, quantitative trading experience and training and education, but for free. So I think we'll see a lot more. And you know, MIT and Caltech and Cornell. I, I put all of my lecture materials are all online for free. Uh, a lot of my videos are online, so uh, more and more faculty and professors uh, are putting the material online for free, anyone to use, to download, to to basically learn from and deploy the technologies, the latest methods. Uh, so that's a good thing in general for humanity, for people to be able to learn. But the challenge is people still want a credation. They want some, some proof, if you will, that you have some kind of rigorous training. And some of the online courses do do this. But, uh, you know, I think we'll see... Um, less, I think overall, less need for a degree. And, you know, people, uh, Elon Musk have got into grad school, but didn't go to grad school, you know, and uh, but people have dropped out of college and then made become billionaires. So we know it's possible uh, to not finish school and become a billionaire and become successful or invent uh, an amazing technology. Uh, but it's unlikely, I guess. So I think people who say, I, I'm going to hell with school, I'm just going to drop out and become a billionaire, you might succeed, but the odds are that you probably will not. And so if you want to kind of place your bets of what's more likely, it still has a lot of value uh, and not just in the education, right? So when you go anywhere for four years or five years to one institution and you meet people and you learn from people and you build a community, the community also has value. So I think what people forget about education is it's not just the, the classes and the homework, it's the people in the institution and the long, lifelong friends that you'll make that become, you know, the Supreme Court justice or become the CEO of a large corporation that then you can call 20 years later and say, "Oh, we had class together. How are you? I've got an idea. Let's chat." And so I think uh, the the sad part of, of just having everything online is I think people um, it, it it's abstracted and so they have less of a of a tangible connection. I I fear now, uh, not necessarily. Sometimes you can have a closer connection with someone online than in person. So not necessarily always more intimate in person, but it, it is uh, so far usually that way. And I, so I think things like web 3.0 or like more engagement with people online is good, but I want to see uh, ways to in- improve that, not just for education, but for all parts of life. And so I, I think it's, it's less needed today than it ever has been, a accreditation or a degree, but it's still useful and, and helpful. And, and I think you know, at the end of the day, having a lot of experience and showing sort of what your history of work that you've done or or papers or projects, um, if you're an artist, what's the art that you've done, right? So being able to point to what have I done, um, and a lot of it you can put online, of of this is the, these are my milestones, things I've completed, work I've done, and, and people will respect that a lot.
0: Yeah, and actually right now uh, in the Web3 community, um, there's a real, uh, culture of anonymity or pseudonymity because you know i think it started kind of with um, satoshi nakamoto you know with Bit- bitcoin um mm. so a lot of people are uh, pseudonymous you know and they are also using avatars of you know different nfts that they have so it's very hard to know who you are talking to um yeah, yeah. and some people you know their names um is uh, like just a number or, you know, you know some, let- some kind of random letters that like X to Y is something, you know, <laughs> like you know, so like there's as so there's this this issue of um I, I don't know if it's an issue, but the, there's definitely a new culture of anonymity, which is kind of makes it hard, um, which is making it harder to uh, m- make deep connections. Um, so so. Uh, and, and I don't know how things like accreditation could work in uh, in that space.
1: Yeah, I yeah. Uh, I think I mean, what well, you could is accredit the avatar. But then how do you know that's you when you go to meet someone? So I think uh, that does raise an interesting challenge is who actually got the credit, who has done this project uh, and some things like anonymous, like some of the hacking groups are anonymous on purpose because they have a, a political goal or they try to disrupt governments and and that's why they need to be but for most people you want some um some providence some tracking of who did that and who learned that and you know uh, who it was so um yeah at some point people have to come out of the shadows and declare who they are i think there's no way around that um which you know i think in, invariably that that's a that's a it's a good thing i think in, a, in an ideal world you would be able to say no matter where you are or what you're doing that you would want anyone to be able to see what it is uh the the simple concept is what if you could be proud of everything that you're doing everywhere you're doing it and if you're not proud of it then why would you do it it's kind of the simple question then you just shouldn't do it it's kind of a, a simple uh, morality thought experiment right so the the anonymity uh, I mean that's easy for me to say in in this country where I am in the my current profession, right? But a lot of times it's for people that are persecuted, that are under uh, duress, or under even you know, uh, under repressive governments, right? So I have the the liberty and the ability to dream of this uh, from a very uh, plush position, but I think the the function of anonymity has a lot of power, especially in places where there's active persecution or or you know, um, of, of, of religious minorities or other minorities or Uh, just anyone who disagrees with the government. So so places like that, uh, we need to support them and because it's the only way they'll survive.
0: Yeah, Um, although uh, most of the people that I see are anonymous, pseudonymous in uh, the Web3 space right now, they're often um, people who are living in free countries, uh, you know, and and I'm not sure, you know, it could be that uh, because of tax reasons or, you know, it could be that they are, yeah, be like lots of other reasons but we are at very in in the very early days of this new movement and and this might be a good way of you know bringing our conversation towards the end as well so we're very early days of this new movement that we call web three um even the term web three kind of started circling around you know in in the last less than a year Mm -hmm. um becoming a bit more popular um so uh new culture is being developed here um and this new culture is going to have um, implications for how we do science how technology develops so as a scientist um you know i would i would love to see you and you know other colleagues of uh, your that that you have to actually to to keep an eye on this new movement, both from the viewpoint of how it could potentially help you, um, you know, propagate and and uh, continue uh, your your work and and get get your uh, message uh, to new audiences um, and uh, raise Im- investment, raise funds, etc., and both also in terms of how it could be damaging possibly in some ways you know like how it could it uh, it could impact you in a negative way um i don't know all the answers i'm just like it's very early days and i'm like really just exploring it so just having these conversations with scientists like yourself mm-hmm. you know, just bringing it to your attention and mm-hmm. hopefully you know over the next six months to a year Kind of engaging and seeing what you're doing and, and like looking at how we could potentially bring you more into this space but human culture is changing our, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, uh, and it's changing fast and in really strange ways new ways uh you know kind of like like the early days of social media think of like how the impact of facebook you know mm-hmm. how, how facebook really changed our culture this is what's happening now with tokenization
1: yeah, I, I think the, I mean, the, I did decentralization and using some of the blockchain technologies. Yeah, I mean, the, some of the pros could be the, the decentralization, but that also could be at the same point that the challenge is that it is, uh, it, it becomes uh, less, it could become uh, less reliable. It might be more traceable, but it might be less reliable in certain circumstances. It may end up costing more emission like in terms of the actual compute cost. It can scale and become actually very expensive just um just on the amount of just compute and energy it's taking to, to process and mine the, the chains, uh, you know, which itself is, you could think about the the ethics of that, like is it actually ethical to build a system that is more energy hungry? Like, is there ways we could build the system to be more efficient? You know, there probably are ways, but I think from the default, it's not. And so uh, I, I think it's, uh, the other thing we have to consider is, um, you know, what is, is there, is it a, a solution in search of a problem or is it a, is it, you know, is it something because the, the, the problem today is, is the concern of sort of, you know, big tech or people being in charge uh, of what, what's, you know, who has your information, how it's moving. Um, But there's a reason that Facebook is, is free, right? The, the quid pro quo is that you get that service for free and that you are giving away a lot of your data, which people sign when they do the end user agreement. Uh, but it, it's still, you can post a lot of information on, like, you, you could always you know, write your own domain and have your own website and build your own, uh, you know, network. There's, there's no, there's nothing stopping anyone from doing that. It's just, it's just harder, right? So I think it is uh, the concerns of big tech are more about privacy and what they do with that data and less about the the fact that no one else can do it. I mean, if you just make, uh, you can do your own HTML coding and make your own website and, and go back to, you know, different message boards and share data, share samples. Uh, so I I'm, I'm I, I really want to make sure that we're building a solution that actually solves a problem, not just building a solution because it'd be cool to have it be built on uh, blockchain technology. Just you know, it happen even in genomics. There's companies that are saying we're going to build a uh, whole genome sequencing for your for your clinical data and then have to be secure through blockchain, but you don't need the blockchain to secure it. Right? So it's just it's an additional uh, feature that's not needed. Uh, it's certainly not in medical systems, right? So at a hospital. Uh, has already in place systems that keep it secure and and, and hold your data and and most of it's through controlling access. But um, uh, you know, so I, I think it's uh, but but it's very early days as you were just saying how these play out and what becomes the most useful for different applications. We're still learning, and I think um, we'll have to wait and see what's most useful in different for scientists, for medical staff, for researchers. Uh, we'll 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 find out. I think over the next five or ten years.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think uh, you nailed it there uh, about solution in in search of uh, a problem. Uh, A lot of chains do feel like that, that they are a solution in uh, in search of a problem. Uh, A lot of them, uh, you know, they are basically uh, uh, like basically taking any concept and then saying now we are doing that on the blockchain right like uh, so, so uh it it definitely there is a bit of that in uh in there um but again like you said yeah it's very early days so so um you know this has been super interesting i would love to stay in touch and and see how things are are developing over time um and like look at maybe potentially how we could use this technology to support the work that you're doing
1: that would be wonderful. Well, a pleasure to have you have me on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you. And uh, look forward to staying in touch.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Professor Chris Mason. Be sure to follow his excellent work. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five star rating and write a review. The full interviews are also available on my YouTube channel, The Somi Show.